Hey everyone, Eric here. Very quickly before we get to the show, just want to give you an update on all the new things we've got going on at CAP. We've got some new staff on board who are producing some amazing daily coverage of China-Africa issues and what's going on specifically in the Chinese discourse in China. Now, this isn't the propaganda stuff I'm talking about. Instead, what we're doing here is providing you with the translations and analysis of all the conversations that are taking place on Chinese social media, new research papers, think tank reports, and lots and lots of primary source material. This is the kind of thing that's just not available on Twitter or in mainstream news coverage. Plus, we've got a lot more Middle East, North Africa coverage now available on the site, and we'll be expanding our focus to other regions in the Global South in the months ahead. So, if you're interested in what China's doing in Africa, the Middle East, and the Global South, you'll definitely want to subscribe. We've made it super easy and really affordable at just $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 a month for everyone else. Try it out free for 30 days. See if you like it. You'll get full access to the website. You'll get the newsletter. Just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, normally on the show, we try and narrow down our discussion to one, maybe two topics, but there is so much going on right now that we just couldn't do that. Let me just run through a few of the things that have happened in the past week, and this is just in the past week, which will give you a sense of kind of where we are. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi just wrapped up a three-nation, four-day tour of Middle East and North African countries. He went to Syria, Egypt, and Algeria. He also held talks with the head of the Arab League, and he did a phone conversation with the Foreign Minister of Iran, really highlighting in their joint statement with the Arab League the roadmap that China is taking for its strategy in MENA and the Middle East. And you can see that they're really starting to invest a lot more geopolitical capital into that relationship. Also, bear in mind now that uh, China sources a significant portion of its energy from the Persian Gulf. And so the priorities in the Persian Gulf and the Middle East have gone up considerably. Also, lots of news on the vaccine front. The competition between the U.S. and China in the vaccine distribution race is going to heat up a lot now. So the U.S. announced that it's going to be donating 25 million jabs that will be distributed in Africa, and it's going to be going to 49 different countries. Now, that stands in very sharp contrast to the Chinese approach to vaccine distributions in Africa, which incidentally increased 4 million this week compared to the same time last week. That being said, the Chinese distribution of vaccines in Africa is highly inequitable. So still about two-thirds of all donations have gone to just three countries. So that's Morocco, Egypt, and Zimbabwe. Algeria now jumped into the number four spot 
on that list as well. And this is all data coming from uh, Bridge Consulting in Beijing. Overall, Africa accounts for about just 6% of Chinese vaccine distributions, with 84% of their other distributions going to countries in Asia and Latin America. And that does give you some perspective on where Africa fits in China's overall hierarchy of, of priorities there. Let's also quickly touch base on what happened in South Africa. The effects of last week's unrest are still being felt as, particularly in the trading sector of resources and strategic minerals, not only coming out of South Africa, but also coming out of countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo, who depend on logistics going through South Africa to reach ports in places like Durban to get the cobalt, the coltan, all of those minerals that are so important for electric vehicle batteries, for phones, for electronics, for all sorts of things. Those shipments have been delayed. Now, they were shut down for a portion of last week when the N3 highway from Johannesburg to Durban actually had to close. And a lot of trucking that passes through to the port of Durban goes on the N3 highway, really showing you a little bit like how when the Suez Canal was closed, how these arteries of global trade, even a small one gets pinched and it can have ripple effects that extend all the way around the world. Also, one of the things that we've been covering quite a bit uh, on the website and in our newsletter is the impact that the unrest had on the Chinese community in Johannesburg and in Durban. We have been doing a lot of translation of Chinese social media accounts on this. It's absolutely fascinating to see the impact. They are now going back into some of their stores and some of their factories that were burned. Uh, so go check that out over on the website. Big story out of also out of Nigeria this week. China was supposed to have financed 85% of the $2.8 billion AKK pipeline. Now, that's a pipeline that went from central Nigeria up to the north. And this was part of President Muhammadu Buhari's big agenda to try and do in economic and infrastructure development in the north. Turns out that the Bank of China and Sinoshore, who were supposed to have financed the bulk of that $2.8 billion pipeline, so about 85%, as I mentioned, They've balked. They're really not interested in it. And now what we're hearing is that the federal government is out shopping for another billion dollars in a scramble to keep construction moving forward. So the 15% that the Nigerians were committing to this project, they used to jumpstart the project. But now that the Chinese aren't showing up with the rest of the financing, again, it is a scramble to find that. Now, this comes on top of the fact that the Chinese have balked on a number of other Nigerian infrastructure project, so the $11.2 billion Lagos to Calabar Coastal Railway, the $3.2 billion Eastern Railway Line, both of those railway projects now, the Nigerians are backing away from the Chinese and looking to private funders and private creditors like Standard Chartered and others, but it really does highlight, Cobus, this dramatic shift that we've been talking about for about six to nine months now about how the Chinese are getting out of the very big infrastructure lending space in Africa that has been the hallmark of China's engagement in Africa for more than a decade, really for almost 20 years. Uh, we've been talking about a lot on this show. For regular listeners, you'll be familiar with this statistic of how lending from the policy banks has just cratered. So China Development Bank and the China Exim Bank went from $75 billion in 2016 to just $4 billion last year. Uh, or actually in 2019, sorry about that. And that's data from the Boston University Global Development Policy Center. Also on the infrastructure space, and this is absolutely critical as we think about the post-COVID-19 era, Chinese infrastructure spending has gone from $11 billion in 2017 to just $3.3 billion in 2020. So 
this is a new world that we're in, and I think it's going to look a little bit like, and these are the last two points, Cobus, before I get to you, what's happened in Senegal and Burkina Faso. So last month in Senegal, the, the government there opened up a new Chinese-financed $150 million data center that was built by Huawei, and this was financed by the China Exim Bank. Very similar arrangement happened this month in Burkina Faso. Huawei announced that it is going to build a 650-kilometer fiber optic network that's going to link up every city in the country for a new smart city program that the government claims is going to be about fighting terrorism and crime. Obviously, people are concerned that they will also use it for surveillance issues, but uh, that is going to the cost of that. $84 million will be subsidized and underwritten by, yes, the China Exim Bank. So, Cobus lots going on. Again, you can see why I couldn't limit us to just one or two issues, but it does add up to me that as we're looking now about a month out to the big Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit, the FOCAC Summit, this is something that happens every three years, that we are at an important inflection point in many ways in terms of China's engagement on the continent for financing, for vaccines, for so many different areas. It seems to me, in my reading of it, that it's really starting to change a lot. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting. I mean, there's there's so many different moving factors and you know kind of going on here. Uh, another one that I would add is I think there's I mean th this is really just reading tea leaves from the outside, but but there seems to be a, a lot of kind of thinking happening in Chinese ministries about about what the decarb their their national decarbonization um, you know program means for international uh, infrastructure funding. Um, you know, so so some some of this kind of inching away from African infrastructure uh, or the big projects anyway seems to be kind of fueled by by worries about debt and, and worries about just being kind of like over leveraged in, in, in parts of the global south but we, we've also seen data from um, uh, I think the what Institute for International Green Finance I think um, their Green BRI Center um, as has recently shown that uh, that that the Exxon Bank and China Development Bank are they're really starting to kind of to pull back from coal financing just as Chinese commercial banks are also starting to pull back from coal financing and you know some of these kind of like foot dragging on particular projects may well have you know kind of have one kind of aspect there as well so it's, it's, it's very interesting it's very difficult to kind of read this the situation at the moment. Yeah, you made a good point about that. I forgot to mention that the Industrial Commercial Bank of China, ICBC, China's largest bank, backed out of the $3 billion Senghua power plant in Zimbabwe, another key indicator that this is changing. Let's get some perspective now on all of this from two people who follow this very closely. We have two researchers joining us today from the Institute of Global Dialogue, one of South Africa's leading foreign policy think tanks. Arena Marison is a researcher at IGD, and Sanusha Naidu is a senior research fellow there and also an associate with the Africa Policy Institute in Nairobi. Uh, Sanusha has been studying emerging powers in Africa for more than a decade, and I just have to mention that Sanusha was on the show all the way back in September 2nd, 2010. So Sanusha, Arena, welcome back to the program, and Arena, it's great to have you on the show for the first time. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Oh, it's wonderful, uh, Eric, to be back on the show and and to join you and Arena and Quervis and yeah, it's been it's been a, an amazing journey since twenty ten. Let Let's kind of pick it up our conversation from September second, twenty ten. A lot has changed. I've mapped out 
just things that have changed in the past week. Let's look back to 10 years only because we have a FOCAC coming up in Senegal sometime in September. If you could kind of lay out as somebody who studies Africa and emerging powers, where are we right now? Are we going into China, Africa 2.0? Am I overreading some of this? Where do you see things right now, Sanusha? You know, when we when we chatted in 2010, Eric, I think it was still very much a, a, a euphoria about China. China was really the, the go-to guy or the go-to country uh, bringing up the infrastructure projects, providing the, the, the financing, uh, being the kind of partner that perhaps Africa felt comfortable with. Um, and then, of course, having this very difficult relationship with traditional partners from the West. I think when we fast forward to where we are today, I think over the last 10 years, the shifts in China's domestic political environment, the shifts in Africa's political environment, but also the shifts with regard to global financing and all of those kinds of trajectories that we have seen has brought us to this point where China is becoming for a lack of a better way to put it, I think some people may dispute this, but it's actually maturing in its Africa relationship. At the same time, I think Africa is beginning to realize that it's not business as usual with China, that China is not necessarily the actor that is the all-weather friend all the time, that China does have strategic interests, it has strategic purpose, and it pursues those strategic interests and purpose based on its its, its own delivery at the domestic level, but also its its footprint at the global level and in terms of where it, where, it, where it wants to be as a global actor. I think two points for me are critical. The The first one is it's not going in with big infrastructure finance without considering the the the, the the kind of, of 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 feasibility that it needs to consider. In other words, it wants value for the money that it puts in. It can no longer sustain white elephant projects. It can no longer sustain, I think, implicitly looking at stability. Stability has been a key issue for investors. I think for the longest time when I was at the Center for Chinese Studies, when we chatted 10 years ago, and over the period of time with various conversations we've had amongst ourselves, yourself, Arena, and other colleagues, the question kept coming back to when would China ask about the stability of a country? And I think the examples of, 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 of Zimbabwe, for, for, for instance, is about that stability. Um, and I think it's changing the narrative again, that China is becoming much more pragmatic, much more clearer, coherent uh, about what it is investing in and how that investment is going to be important, not just for the fact that it, 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 it consolidates and strengthens the, the partnership with Africa and its Africa partnership, but it also has to have traction to domestic accountability, domestic consensus, as well as where the China, where the, the Communist Party wants to see itself in terms of the value addition. So I think for African countries, and let me just, you know, use this as a segue for Arena to come in here. Um, the project we are running currently, which is a perception study of the Belt and Road Initiative, an elite perception study, we realizing that 
in the case of South Africa, that a lot, uh, that many of the dynamics we are talking about here today are the dynamics we are finding at the macro, micro, uh, and, and the microcosm of the South African relationship with China. I think that there's a sense that China is a very important actor. But when it comes down to the the actual implementation of the relationship, the 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 capacity, the capabilities, the resources, the plan. How do you develop a plan? What is your plan and your policy and your engagement with China? That's where we find that there's a, invariably a lot of gaps. That, for example. Durko has an, uh, a memorandum of understanding on the BRI, but in terms of an actual plan in what the BRI is going to be part of in South Africa's industrial capacity, in its infrastructure master plan, and so forth, there's very little substance. There's very little that we can find the traction around. So I think on that on that on that score, for me. Uh, with South Africa, and given its institutional architecture and its structural conditions, it's still not where it wants to be in its relationship with China. I think for other African countries, we'll have to consider that kind of trajectory as well. Arena, um, if you know, one of the things that 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 I remember, like even ten years ago, we've been calling for is is greater African capacity capacity on China and greater kind of you know like skills building, including things like language skills and negotiation skills among African policymakers for for dealing with China. I think almost every single African think tank who deals with China Africa issues have, have made that call many times. Um, so I was wondering how you see progress on that score. Do you? See see greater capacity now that, that it's so much later and then another FOCAC summit is, is looming um, among, among the African policymakers you interact with. Thanks, Corbus. And what's interesting for me, especially in the context of capacity building specifically, I mean, from China engaging with China, you actually know what to expect. Plans are laid out in secession and there is a clean line of communication in terms of their policies, even with this kind of change that we've seen over the last 10 years, over the last 20 years even. And unfortunately, if I can just speak to the question you've just posed, I am not seeing a greater change, even within the study that Sanusha is talking about, um, specifically looking at perceptions of how people perceive the BRI, how people really understand how Africa engages China even. We're not seeing that a, a greater nuanced approach. It's still pockets of excellence. So you will see some areas specifically in business, perhaps academia to a, a finer extent, um, a little bit in government sectors, but you only see pockets of excellence really being developed in business. And even that is kept to a minimum. So if I understand, you're saying that basically the, the knowledge deficits about China among African governing elites and in the public policy sectors really haven't improved that much as we go into this upcoming FOCAC from 10 years ago. It's an interesting point. I mean, you want to see, you know, this kind of growth in understanding China, but unfortunately... I, I believe that it's still a parallel uh, kind of old narratives where China is painted as a nefarious actor coming into Africa versus a romantic notion of an understanding of China. There is no in-between. So there still is much of a gap that needs to be filled in terms of understanding more about China, even going into this next VOCAC. And perhaps that is where Africans should be orienting their approach in the next 10 years to China, to FOCAC as well. 
So Nisha, like I was wondering how how you see the the impact of the China Africa relationship, which kind of impact it has it's had on Africa's perceptions of its traditional partners. Is has the kind of growing engagement that from China has that actually shifted how African stakeholders see their relationships with with traditional stakeholders like the U.S. and the U.K. If I may, um, I can talk about that, Corbus, from the perspective of South Africa. I think for South Africa, what I've noted particularly is the Ramaphosa presidency and this idea or, or this perception that the Ramaphosa presidency seems to be rebalancing with the West right now, uh, particularly around the vaccine diplomacy, the vaccine access questions. I mean, the constant en- engagement around the, the, the WTO, around the question of the temporary uh, waiver of the TRIPS agreement, um, the question around vaccine nationalism, vaccine racism, and more importantly, I think, around the AU. Now, the debate or, or the discussion is, 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 is Ramaphosa or is the Ramaphosa presidency looking at the West as a kind of rebalancing of relationships with, with, with emerging actors from the, from the global South? In other words, is it rebalancing its relationship with the global South in terms of the BRICS, in terms of uh, its relationship with China, India, and so forth? I think within that mix, some some of us believe, or some commentators believe rather, that it is really about hedging all bets. So that now that you are in this position where you've got China, you've got the West, you've got these, uh, especially this this rivalry between the U.S. and and um, and Beijing, particularly a kind of of a, of a of 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 a. T- to Suriji's trap approach, then the idea is how do we, sorry, the idea then is how do we deal with that going forward? Uh, and how do we manage that? And how do we leverage it in terms of agency? This is just from the South African perspective. There are others that believe in South Africa that perhaps this is an opportunity for the West as well to regain their leverage with the, with, with the Ramaphosa presidency. Uh, I think there is questions that were raised in terms of why did it take so long for South Africa to approve the, the, the vaccine from China? Now we know that that has been approved with conditions and they're about uh, uh, quite, quite, uh, 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 quite, a, quite a substantial uh, uh, number of vaccines that are going to come through. But again, I think it has to do with the point that Arena ra- raised earlier, and that is how much do we know about a changing China and how much is that, that knowledge of China being informed by different narratives. For example, in South Africa, there's, this, there's a view as well that a lot of our information about China is syndicated from overseas media that is then repackaged and then republished in South African media. So a lot of the narrative on China, for example, is coming from Western media that has a particular perception of China. And again, we need to unpack that. Whether this is finding traction or is this across the board in other African countries, I think it's it's something that we need to explore further and to, to interrogate deeper in, in understanding this. But just generally looking at other African countries, for example, I think I think China finds, uh, particularly maybe in Southern Africa, maybe not in, 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 in all sectors, but maybe in some sectors and in some countries, there may be a little bit 
more engagement and more ability to engage. I think South Africa represents, you know, certain levels of 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 institutional bottlenecks that they can't deal with. Uh, there's a regulatory environment that they find difficult to navigate. There's questions about uh, the fact that you have, for example, uh, European investors that as much as they complain about South African policy and 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 and, and issues around governance and questions of uncertainty, they still stay in the South African landscape and they are able to navigate that and they continue to remain. Maybe for emerging actors, they come in and they get frustrated about it. There's also the questions around certain of the exposés that have happened by, say, Bongani that tracks uh, 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 state contracts and whether they were regular and followed regulatory frameworks. Uh, the Turkish one comes to power, the floating energy t- uh, ships. That came, that came into into, into into uh, into into perspective recently about whether the tender process was followed. So I think for emerging actors as well, uh, it, there is a difficulty. And I think for China again now is to understand where their BRIC partner is and where their BRIC partner is taking them. I think for Ramaphosa, it's about how do I make sure that I get the best possible transactional value out of my foreign policy by engaging with all actors. But I think for China and other African countries, they realize that there are certain levels in which they have maybe a better traction. But we've also been hearing through particular discussions and projects that we are working on that the regulatory environment is finding its way into other African countries as well. So there's another avenue that China has to think about in terms of how do they abide by regulatory frameworks in other domestic economies, other African markets, and apply those regulatory frameworks to the tender process. You know, listening to you, Sanusha, it's I'm I'm just really frustrated because back in 2010, this was all still very new, and China was still a very new player. I mean, you called it back then. uh, You were working for Fahamu, I think, back then, and you were Mm -hmm. running the emerging powers. And China was an emerging power. China's not an emerging power now. China's the second largest economy in the world. China's got the largest military in the world. China is an established power. And yet, when Kobus and I talk to policymakers, think tankers, scholars, you know, in Africa, and even Africanists in other capitals, it is shocking to me to see how Euro and Anglo-centric they are. Yeah. I mean, as if China doesn't exist, as if China is some kind of fringe player. And, and it's just and, – and then we look at the research coming out of the Kiel Institute and Center for Global Development about how one after another – African and even South American and developing world countries are getting their butts handed to them in negotiations with the Chinese on these infrastructure contracts. And everybody blamed the Chinese. Okay, the Chinese drive a hard bargain. As the researchers said in those reports, they're actually not doing anything different than a lot of other stakeholders. But the key question here is agency runs both ways. Agency is about standing up in a positive way and asserting a positive agenda, but it's also about being accountable when you're incompetent. And the fact that there is very little China competency in these governments today, to me, is inexcusable because we are now a decade into this China revolution. China's not an emerging power. I'd like to get both of your takes on that. Arena, let's start with you. Gosh, I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure where to start with that one. I mean, I completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> we, have, we have a behemoth that can be understood and yet... It's difficult to understand, and yet we see it's easier to understand others just because of this this language barrier. And that should not 
be the deciding factor to but, whether or not you engage. But 82,000 African students study in, in China every single year. And that's actually an excellent point because we hear of all these students building up this capacity and yet there is no place for them to go to be absorbed, to actually be contributing to, you know, to these workforces in such a meaningful way. And it's interesting to see that there are um, pockets, there are agencies or organizations where people of this caliber can be employed and can, you know, be furthering business, for example, but there aren't enough of them. And so you start to wonder, is it about interest in doing business with China? Or is there this kind of taking China for granted that it will always be this kind of all-weather friend? Is Africa going to get to a point where it realizes it's missed its key opportunities in actually engaging China in a mutual way itself? What do you think, Sanusha? No, I completely agree. I'm frustrated, just like you. In fact, even more frustrated when I listen to how the engagement with China is not considered in the way that it elevates agency. I mean, just take, for example, how we define or how South Africa defines who they put at the Chinese um, in, the, in the South African mission in China. I mean, n- and I would like to see more a more investment in Mandarin, learning to speak Mandarin, knowing how to understand the culture of China, how did, how China operates at the domestic level. I mean, there's a lot there that, you know, you, you can't see China as just an actor on the external stage. You've got to be able to link the domestic, the the. the the way in which structural conditions are changing, the changing dynamics of the country itself. It's not the China of 2010. It's the China of 2021. And in that time since since 2010, China has evolved substantially. But the problem I have is a lot of the policymakers and even, even, even people that are experts or supposedly experts on China at times, they look at China through one lens, that this is the country that's going to save us. And, you know, we said this in 2010, China is not your panacea. It's not your panacea for development because as long as you don't have a China strategy or you don't have a China engagement, then China is going to be able to, 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 to find its own traction. And when it gets tired and it gets, when it gets frustrated, it's going to move away from you. And, and, and we're seeing this in the context of, of some of the African countries where it's the same old kind of portfolio of things that you want from China. Invest in this, finance that. Well, China is not that financing an investor that of, of yesteryear. You've got to change what you present to the Chinese. You've got to basically up your game. It's like the, the the documentary, you know, when China met Africa, I mean, 16, I mean, 10 years, 15 years later, we now realize that Africa's agency is still very much caught in this asymmetrical view of the relationship with China. I mean, the other point to make, uh, uh, Eric, is that you can negotiate a, a good deal with China. You don't have to negotiate a, a deal with China that constantly says, oh, China has the, the, the power or the power or the, or the power relation is imbalanced because China is much more powerful than me. No, I mean, I think there's a lot in this engagement when we were in Fahamo as well, where we realized that on green energy, on governance infrastructure issues, on transparency, the Chinese are willing to negotiate in terms of how you get your uh, 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 the, the bilateral investment treaty sorted out. I think the problem here for me precisely is the fact that 
we think of we, a lot of the context of how we look at the world in, 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 in Africa as well is defined by binary views about reductionist views that uh, the West represents this particular kind of identity of imperialism, etc. China is this is this alternative uh, that uh, Russia comes in with another uh, identity. But the problem is that political elites, and this is going to be probably something that's going to get me into trouble, but nevertheless, I'll say it, is that political elites complicate the system. They complicate their relationship with China when it doesn't have to be complicated. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really important point, and you know, kind of an and like you cannot talk enough about, or one cannot talk enough about about this kind of split between elites and and populations, and and the way that that kind of structures so many African interactions with outside actors. Um, Sanusha, so speaking speaking of like reductionist worldviews, um, I was wondering, you know, in 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 your your kind of in the context of you doing um, this this um, elite level survey on on impressions of of the BRI in Africa, I was wondering whether you're getting any kind of feedback from from stakeholders and also what you yourself think about the build better build build better build back better world. Is, is that the B B three W? Yeah, build back better world. <laughs> yeah. it's the worst acronym. It's like it's like I, I, I joke before like this comes from the Melania Trump school of naming. You know, it's um, but like but anyway. So 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 kind of do, like what, you know what are the impressions of B three W? Like is is it getting any kind of traction in Africa so far? Well, from what we could gather in the discussions we've had through the project is I think it's still so new and uncertain and it's, you know, it's, it's something that when you, you're not sure what it is. You, you have no kind of sense of what is the, the actual detail in, in, in the project or in the initiative itself. I'm not sure whether in uh, bilateral relations or whether through the AU or even with the regional economic communities, the U.S. government is discussing this further, etc. To me, it was just a pulling a rabbit out of the hat and it was just about something to fashion a brand new phrase and, a, and something that will act as a countervailing force to the BRI. But having said that, I think, I don't even think that, uh, in my opinion, and I could be wrong, that even in in, in, in the Ministry of, of, of Foreign Affairs, which we call the, the Department of International Relations and Cooperation. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if they're giving it that, that level of thought. I think they're still be trying to figure out what it means, uh, and what is the detail. But at the same time, we've picked up, for example, in the case of, of, of the, of the Belt Road Initiative, that, um, there is also a sense of uncertainty about what the BRI means, what the Belt Road and Belt Road Initiative means. You know, what is it? How are you defining it? What framing? What framework does it have? I mean, there's a lot of different uh, roads to the BRI. You know, there's the Silk Road uh, of of technology. There's the infrastructure road. There's the health road. There's the the the, the military industrial road. But I think when we talk to elites, particularly. Uh, the range that we are talking to, that is labor, business, government, uh, consultancies, uh, civil society groups that work with, uh, with, with infrastructure programs, they are not clear about, there's no coherence about what the definition of the BRI is. And that brings us to the question of whether or not government has done 
is is responsible for communicating and unpacking what the BRI is. So, for example, with business, when we chatted with 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 uh, business count with, with with stakeholders from business as well as with uh, stakeholders from the uh, from the uh, social partners, business, labor, and government. They were they were very uncertain. You know, they 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 said the Belt Road Initiative is very much a a a framework that's amorphous. It doesn't have a clear, coherent focus for them, and that comes back to the question of whether South Africa has not got a clear strategy on the Belt and Road Initiative. So I think if you compare the two, Quibus, I think uh, even in even in the BRI, there's a bit of uncertainty. Uh, we do know that South Africa has an MOU, has signed an MOU on it, but uh, with the uh, with China on the Belt and Road Belt Road Initiative. But again, the question is. Are they actually saying to stakeholders who are going to be key drivers of projects or, or financing uh, through uh, looking for financing from the BRI whether or not this is where this is how you go this is where the 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 the, the traction is this is where the projects are this is how you go about uh, doing it and even between ministries we're finding that there's little communication or if there is communication they're relying on Derco to provide them with the kind of uh, roadmap of what the BRI is. So for me, and I'm not sure if Arena wants to jump in here, but for me, I think again, it comes back to whether or not you you want to be part of the BRI because it's fashionable and, it, and, and you must be part of it. But at the end of the day, there's no certainty or there's no clarity. What is the plan for you to be part of the BRI? By the way, for those of you who are not familiar with the reference that Sanusha is making to Durko, that is the basically the equivalent of the South African Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the or the the South African State Department, if you will. That's an acronym that a lot of folks outside of South Africa are not familiar with. Very interesting uh, seminar that happened last week that was hosted by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and Zainab Usman's team over there. And David and Dee, the very famous, well-known Kenyan economist, he said something interesting that I kind of highlighted in our newsletter. Uh, so what you have then ended up with is a convergence of the interests of politicians who want big projects, uh, financiers, of course, who are looking for large transactions, uh, and vendors, you know, from whether China, whether you're talking about China Road and Bridge, or you're talking about uh, uh, U.S. construction companies and everybody, uh, or whoever, they are all looking for the same thing. But those are not Africa's development priorities at the moment. What do we see with the, the B3W? One, I want to point out that uh, it sounds like B3W has already decided what the priorities are. Yeah, this is what they want to do. Um, so there is very little, uh, I think, scope for African ownership. Uh, it's, 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 again, sort of, uh, uh, sort of driven from outside. And indeed, is a very well-known commentator and critic of large infrastructure spending, he believes that money should instead be spent on human development. And, and uh, so agriculture, education, and small-scale business, small SME development, rather than these big infrastructure projects. And from the beginning, he contends that B3W is really set out to confront China and not necessarily to help and engage Africans and other people in the developing world. So with that in mind, Arena, let's get your take on B3W and BRI. BRI is amorphous, B3W is amorphous, but you guys are studying elite perceptions of BRI. 
How has that changed as you've seen the the tensions that have escalated in the past three or four years between the United States and China and the BRI is a centerpiece of that discussion, in part based on what Sunusha was saying, is that so much of the perceptions in, in Africa are influenced by Western media and Western narratives. Has that come into the conversation about BRI? Gosh, I mean, there definitely is this curiosity at this point about B3W from Africa's side. Um, but there still is so much more that, that needs to be done than just a, a a non-catchy slogan at this point. Um, and what's interesting in how the BRI comes into play in comparison is that the B3W was a complete reaction to it. So some feel that it has an end game, and that is to counter the BRI, where the BRI has a completely different vision. So while, yes, BRI is so amorphous, you know, some engaging, you know, or reading about the BRI, they wonder, is this now Chinese foreign policy? So that is part of the confusion. When you look at FOCAC even and BRI, I mean, both are actually public-private partnerships. And that's how actually I interpret the BRI as the world's biggest triple P, PPP, which at the end of the day has a commercial value. Otherwise, why take on any kind of risk of building any kind of infrastructure if there is no return? And perhaps this is where um, there is scope for smaller projects because the BRI is not defined to just only tackle these large-scale mammoth projects for infrastructure. It is about where is the return specifically and where is the opportunity for a triple P partnership. And when you come to looking at how these kind of tensions have played out between China and the US, I mean, we saw it highlighted um, last month at the at the NATO summit where you know NATO declared China a systemic challenge and China was called out to act responsibly in the international system and you know given the tensions that have been building you know with the BRI specifically or or, or discussing the BRI it presents a new interpretation of transnational movement but also a kind of deterritorialization of how we understand geopolitics in itself. So China has emphasized that each country will have ownership of respective BRI infrastructure. But again, this amorphous nature, you know, people don't exactly understand how to under how to undertake a BRI project and what are these additional nuances. So while it is an extension in terms of China's vision and grand strategy, you know, it carries through this kind of spatial expansion where there is a concern for competing interests and how territories and geostrategy influence is going to be actually unbundled. Mo moving to, to more recent issues, I wonder if, if you could both reflect a little bit on, on, on how you think the current crisis in South Africa is going to affect all of these issues. Like, you know, kind of what, what you think, the, how, how it affects particularly kind of calculus in China and in, in the, in the China-South African relationship specifically. Um, Sanusha, why don't you, you go ahead and then Arena, you can jump in. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, on the foreign policy front for, for, for South Africa, the question is much more about what does this mean for South Africa's engagements in initiatives that are supposed to bring peace, stability, and development. I mean, South Africa is taking on, on the 1st of August, it's chairing the organ on politics, defense, and security, which is a key political structure in the Southern African development community. It's um, 
founding documents is the Static Treaty um, and, and the Peace Treaty and so forth. This is a key institution in terms of dealing with stability in the region. And given what has happened in South Africa, I think there are quite a few nuances that are coming to the fold now around the role that South Africa plays as a peace uh, key, as, a, as, a, as a country that enables or initiates peace and stability and development, uh, brings about levels of, of pursuing uh, strengthened institutional architecture, uh, supporting um, the issues around what's happening in, uh, with, with, with uh, stability in Mozambique, questions of democratic stability in Swaziland, uh, what's happening in Lesotho, um, and even in Zimbabwe. But the real challenge, I think, for South Africa right now is how much of what has transpired in terms of our domestic uh, challenges, our domestic uh, issues, will now re- compel or refocus South Africa to look at resources, particularly resources to assist in, say, the deployment of the peace of, of the troops to to Mozambique by the Southern African Development Community, the decision made at the double troika uh, earlier on in the year. How does that impact on that deployment of resources, capabilities, and capacities? Because we now got the twenty five thousand soldiers deployed of the South African National Defense Force deployed in the country for restoring peace, stability, and just maintaining uh, some level of, 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 um, of normalcy to our domestic environment following the events of last week. I think that raises questions about how do we see institutions like the African Renaissance Fund um, and the role that the African Renaissance Fund is playing in supporting development in the continent. Um, at the same time, with external uh, actors, with our, our, our partners in Europe, the US, Asia, and elsewhere, I think the, the challenge right now, from what I could read in the immediate days after, uh, the, unf- uh, after the, 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 the so-called unrest that emerged in, case in KwaZulu-Natal, I think the challenge now is the confidence that external partners um, like China, like the US, like um, Europe, have in the Ramaphosa presidency. I know that there was a snap survey done uh, by the convers- uh, by I think it was Daily Maverick, um, an online media house, which l- spoke to a few ambassadors, and their argument or their response was, "We need you know as much as we think Ramaphosa is an important leader, he needs to be decisive." He needs to now show the kind of decisive leadership to to bring that stability and to bring this the, these levels of domestic uh, unrest under control. They also feel that at the moment it's not going to impact on investment into South Africa, but it will definitely raise questions about whether corporates from their countries feel confident and feel safe enough that the government can protect their interests and their investments. So, for example, the Toyota company, which has a big factory uh, in KwaZulu-Natal, in Durban, where the unrest unfolded on the East Coast, 
have now raised questions about whether they want to keep that plant open because they're saying that they're not only are their workers' safety at risk, but their investment is at risk. So these plans that South Africa has around the industrial master plans around industrialization programs, the fact that we're talking about South Africa becoming a hub for manufacturing, you know, the Aspen plant in, in Eastern Cape, in, Coug- in the Cougar Development Corridor, as to um, uh, supplying uh, 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 value chains in, uh, for example, across the region in Southern Africa. These all pose threats to 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 the way to whether South Africa has that ability to re to to return to those kinds of of of, of master plans that they had in the industrialization process, but also for regional value chains. And just you know, earlier in the program, uh, when Eric mentioned how this impacts on China's um, value chain in terms of its uh, its transport corridor. The fact that the Durban Harbour had to go under force majeure, uh, uh, under under limited services by Transnet because there was a, there was a sense that you couldn't keep the 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 air, the, the, the Durban Harbour open because of the threat of instability. The same thing with the airport. The same thing with the with the Richards Bay uh, Dubai trade port. I mean, these are questions that also raise fundamental issues around how does the region then also think about its the impact that any instability in, in South Africa has on their value chain, on their uh, um, uh, access to economic goods and transport of goods. I think for South Africa, for, for investors, that's a key issue now in terms of going forward. And then, of course, there's there's legislation in Parliament that also poses particular questions for investors. For example, what happens to the land question, uh, a land uh, expropriation of land without compensation? Is this going to be a trigger effect for 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 those that are going to demand in the in the in, in uh, under the banner of socio-economic inequality that you need to return the land? What does this mean for government in terms of whether this land will still be under state state custodianship? Will it then be given to 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 people to as as communities to be able to to have control over it? And then there's the Employment Equity Act. Then there's the Procurement Act. There's the company the the revision of the Companies Act where you want to labour to sit on boards. I mean, there's so much that's happening in South Africa right now when it comes to investment trade. Uh, and wh- where we are right now, I think, is a lot for us to start thinking about in terms of whether investment is going to be going outward in terms of encouraging South African companies to move and they have very little support at times by the state, unlike the Chinese companies that do have support by the state, but South African companies find that they that they can't compete with the compet- competitiveness of Chinese companies in Africa. But at the same time, will they now be looking inward in terms of filling the gaps where investment is not coming from abroad? And I think this is some serious challenges, serious questions that the, that the Ramaphosa presidency has to start thinking about because what happened last week was not just socioeconomic, it was also economic sabotage and we can see the implications of that for, for, for the country. And then lastly, I think I want to make the point as well is, will we now see other centers of economic uh, and, and financial power emerging that will compete with South Africa in terms of what's, uh, in terms of, of, of countries saying, particularly in the region, we don't want to be dependent on South Africa's value chain. Mm-hmm. So let's wrap up our discussion looking forward to the upcoming FOCAC Summit. Again, we don't know exactly when it's going to be. Sometime in September, that puts us probably about eight weeks out. 
The Chinese have this weird thing, unlike, say, other summits, where they know well in advance where it's going to be, what's going to happen, here's the agenda, and everybody shows up on time. They announced this thing like two weeks before. So I presume that African governments and your friends at Durko know when to go, so they booked airplane tickets and whatnot, but we don't know. That being said, we have eight weeks to go. I'd like to get both of you very quick because we're running out of time. What is the one piece of advice that you would give to senior level policymakers and stakeholders who you interact with through your work at IGD about what they should hope or try to get out of the FOCAC summit? What's the thing that either as a group, the continent should walk away from FOCAC with, whether it's at the AU level or at regional levels or on a bilateral level? Arena, let's start with you. What's the one piece of advice or objective that you think African countries, governments and organizations, whatever you want, however you want to frame it, should get out of FOCAC? Thanks, Eric. So in wrapping up for, with with my final um, recommendations, we always talk about how Africans really need, or African countries need, need to start speaking with um, a more streamlined voice or rather common positions, if I can rather call it that. And it's really time to operationalize our MOUs to get the, the capacity behind, you know, what is required to, to really impact at that kind of level. And I mean, of course, there's going to be a major orientation towards, you know, how do we address, you know, COVID recovery, you know, so you have your health diplomacy, you have, you know, your vaccine diplomacy specifically, but it's also time to start looking at how health and security and infrastructure are painting this kind of holistic picture of what directions your development cooperation needs to start taking. Other than that, it's really going to need to bring in um, corporates, get your right corporates in the room, the ones who are going to be able to operationalize mm, these kinds of agreements. So in that, you know, it doesn't, it's not going to matter if you have the greatest MOU and it's not going to matter, for example, what happened last week or this week, you know, with the RAND not moving, even with the, the instability that we that we saw in these various areas um, of South Africa, that's not going to matter against the, the, bigger, the bigger picture of everything. And of course, as Kobus was saying, what about that diplomatic capacity that we are constantly talking about trying to build? It's not just about getting the people who are able to operationalize something, but it's about understanding your partner or understanding your opponent, if you will. The easiest way to start a negotiation on an excellent foot is to speak someone else's language. That means you have made the first compromise. That means the next person, your opponent or your negotiating partner, is going to have to make a bigger compromise. Okay. Sunusha, let's get your take. What is the one thing, try and be as practical as you possibly can be, that you would advise African stakeholders, negotiators, policymakers ahead of FOCAC? Do your homework. Know what you want to get out of the relationship with China. Know what your brand is. Sell your brand and make sure that you treat China not as somebody that's going to save you, but somebody that's a partner that can be engaged with and have all of the other stuff will fall into place. Have the right people in the room. Have the right uh, corporates in the room. Have the right actors in the room, particularly not only from corporates, but also but from government, you know, and, and make sure you have a strategy. Go into the relationship with a strategy. You can't go into a relationship and start to negotiate folk, uh, negotiate or attend FOCAC without knowing what your strategy is. So I think at the end of the day, it's everything Arena said and more. 
I mean, for us, I think the challenge is we go in there assuming that China is going to basically be the one just giving uh, freebies out and deciding that we're just going to collect these freebies and come back. This is not Candy Crush. This is the real world. It's not Candy Crush. It's the real world. Kobus, that's going to go down as a memorable statement there. Sanusha Naidu is a senior research fellow at the Institute for Global Dialogue and also an associate with the Africa Policy Institute in Nairobi. Arena Marissin is a researcher also at the Institute for Global Dialogue. We want to thank you both for joining us. Arena and Sanusha, I know you both are on Twitter. Can you share us your, your Twitter handles? Arena, go first. Absolutely. It's at Miris and Arena. Okay, I'll put a link to that in our show notes. And Sanusha, how can people follow what you're reading and writing these days? It's at Sanusha Naidu, all one word. Uh, Naidu spelt as N-A-I-D-U. Excellent. I will put links to some of the work that they've both done, as well as their social media handles. Uh, Sanusha Arena, thank you so much for taking the time. And really, it's been a blast kind of walking back down memory lane for the past 10 years. And we will make sure that 2031 will not be the next time, Sanusha, that you're on the show. I look forward to it, Eric. It was wonderful to Corvus and you as well. And congratulations for the wonderful work that you put out. Absolutely. It's excellent. It is both fun and somewhat depressing to reflect back on 10 years and where we were in 2010. In fact, the show that I did with Sanusha was even predates you being on the China Africa podcast. So there was there's a lot of history there. I think you joined somewhere in the late fall of 2010. Yeah, I think like around November or so of of 2010, I think. That's right. So a lot of time has passed. And yet again to what Sunusha was saying and what Arena was also saying is that the level of understanding about China has not increased proportionally. And I, I'm just blown away by it. I, I just, I am, I'm speechless now. And, and again, at what point is it on you, not you personally, but African stakeholders who are not getting good deals and don't have cohesive China strategies, as Sunusha said, that the fact that Sunusha has to say go in with the strategy to a FOCAC summit is what her piece of advice was is kind of revealing. Yeah, yeah, completely. You know, it's I it's, mean you would think that they would do that, but I don't think that's something that we should take for granted. Yes. Yes, and I think this is true for uh, true across the global south, um, not only for Africa. Um, I think you know one one of the problems I think is is that um, is that you know, there's a kind of a fundamental issue in terms of how, how like all of these countries put out these development plans um, and industrialization plans and so on. But it's it's sometimes a little unclear really how committed they are to it and how, how much of it, how much of their kind of attention is, is paid to these plans and how much is paid to to them remaining in power personally. Um, you know, which is just always, I mean, the, that, that kind of tension is, is true for politics everywhere. But but it's it becomes particularly true in, in you know, in, in contexts like in Africa, where in some African countries you have this, you've had this kind of historical kind of system of, of extroversion, you know, kind of where where a lot of a lot of, um, of of stakeholders came to power and 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 exercised the power as a kind of a gatekeeper for for kind of materials, kind of like different different kind of materials on the global market, and that is the, their kind of their. Um, 
their kind of lever of power rather than a, a robust kind of national development plan as, as, you, as you've seen in, in, in some Asian countries. So, you know, so I think there might be one clue to, to, to one of the, to the issues. But, but yeah, I agree with you. It's really dismaying, you know, especially after years and years and years of, of, of you know, of, of a drumbeat of how important it is for Africa to, to have a coherent China strategy and for the entire African continent to, to start planning together to maximize the kind of impact the strategic impact of these different investments so that you don't replicate investments across borders, for example. Like, that, that kind of planning still isn't happening to the extent that it should, and it's, it's really dismaying. Yeah, but to your point, it's really critical to emphasize that this is, you not, this is not uniquely an African phenomenon. We talked to Rashid Griffith in the Caribbean about the fact that the Caribbean does not have a joint negotiating Ponce Caricom, does not have a... We talked to Rashid Griffith. Uh, yeah. We talked to Rashid Griffith, host of the China in the Caribbean podcast, and he told us about how CARICOM—that's the Caribbean equivalent of the AU—does not have a coordinated negotiating policy with China. He said the knowledge levels about China and the knowledge deficits are are very high. People are still focused towards the U.S. and Europe. We heard that when we talked to the folks in Argentina in South America, that they too don't have a coordinated negotiating strategy, and certainly here in ASEAN does not. Uh, there's a lot of differences within the Southeast Asian blocs as well in terms of how they negotiate with China. So this is not unique, but the stakes in many ways are higher for Africa than they are, say, for ASEAN that does $1.25 trillion of trade with China. There's a lot of room to maneuver in that. In Africa, with $187 billion spread across really just 10 countries, there's not a lot of room for error. And if you want to maximize your position, you got to know more. You know, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's really problematic. Um, it, it also, it also puts kind of undue pressure on, on Western countries, you know, or, or maybe more specifically, it kind of feeds into a narrative of Western leadership of the entire world, a Western norm setting that that I think is really out of date. Um, you know, the West isn't a kind of the, the the kind the level of norm setter it was in the '90s, for example, right? Kind of there needs to be spaces for particularly the global South to to set their own norms. And you know, and and, and China China is, is going to be an important partner there, but it's not the only one. And you know, and and, and to to still to, to be this kind of like cut off from that side that side of 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 the global power landscape just seems unwise. I guess the part that confuses me is that when you look at countries like Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa, the big economies in Africa, their largest trading partners are China. The United States barely does any trade with Africa today. It's down to like $40 billion a year. It's, it's marginally insignificant for the most part when you spread that across 54 countries. And yet you would think that there would be a self-interest to, to know more about your largest trading partner. That being said, you know, I, I don't know how well the United States knows. We generate a lot of China expertise. We have an amazing China scholarship community. I don't know how much that informs public policy or not, specifically at the elite level, but at least the knowledge base is there. But I guess I'm just I'm just surprised that there isn't more native interest in in Chinese affairs, given that so much of their economic future depends on trade with China versus trade with other parts of the world. Well, the thing is, is that is that you're right, right? Kind of like China did replace these other more traditional partners in, in, in this trading relationship, but the trading relationship itself is still relatively similar to how it was in the past. So in that sense, 
you know, kind of the like if, if for example, in in the DRC, if if you're sitting if you're sitting on on this kind of big valuable cobalt um, deposit, then then who you're selling it to isn't such isn't the biggest issue, right? Kind of like for like for 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 countries, then it, it becomes a lot more about who has access to to that particular resource within within the country and 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 who's who's able to to kind of to spin that access into into access to the international market. But it's it's less who particularly is buying it in the international market because because the the transaction is still relatively the same. Where it becomes very much like a, a different situation is in the case of something like Nigeria, you know, kind of where suddenly, you know, Nigeria. Nigeria obviously built a lot of its economy on the back of, of selling oil, and now because China is buying oil everywhere, it's not actually that interested in China in Nigerian oil. So, and you know, kind of, and, and the entire world is trying to decarbonize. So, so that then put, put this like very high relief on the on whichever particular kind of development plan and diversification plan the government came up with, and that is, I think, where the real scandal lies when there really isn't a big plan, you know, um, and and the governments didn't didn't kind of prepare for the entire trade landscape changing as it is now. So you noticed in this show, we started talking a lot more about the FOCAC summit. That is going to be a theme of our shows in August and into September leading up to FOCAC. And then obviously we'll have some reaction to what happens afterwards. And then separately, we have a new Africa editor who's going to be joining us full-time as of August, and his first assignment is going to be preparing all of these briefings on the history of FOCAC, the key issues, the key players, and we're going to provide all of this in-depth analysis on FOCAC because this year is far more important than years past, given that we're at this inflection point. All of those data points that I mentioned at the top of the show, from vaccines to the great power rivalry to the questions over infrastructure investment, the digital Silk Road, the health Silk Road, military security, all of these different relationships are in flux right now. And so we're going to be providing all of that. You do have to be a subscriber to the China Africa Project to get it, but our new Africa editor is somebody you're going to want to read what he says. I can't tell you his name right now until his first start date in August. We're going to have him on the show in the first week of August to, to talk about it, what he's going to be doing. Many of you will already know who he is. But this is a guy who has a PhD in China-Africa relations, and he is going to be writing all of this. So, Kobus, we've got two PhDs on the team. And uh, so that's really exciting for us to be able to start expanding what we're doing. And then, of course, we have our China editor now who's, you know, three or four times a week now providing material for us to, on our website. Again, that's just for subscribers. So you can see we're having a lot of great content available to our subscribers. They get it delivered via email every day at 6 a.m. Washington time or any time on the website. Again, we're also going to be offering white papers coming up in August as well, or briefing papers, should I say, on FOCAC. So that's something you're not going to want to miss. If you would like to subscribe, we would be so grateful for your support, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another edition. Until then, I'm Eric Olander for Kobus van Staden. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobus at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com. Project.com.